You're listening to the Bible Brush Up podcast. Today we are concluding our 12-week Torah series. Uh, unfortunately, I got a little sick last week, was unable to speak in the microphone. My voice had completely gone out. Uh, and so I'm going to cover as much ground as I can today in the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is our first and last episode in the book of Deuteronomy. And going forward from here, we will be entering a new Bible reading plan called 90 Days of Promise, and that will just continue on into the book of Joshua, Judges, and so on and so forth. And so that reading plan is available on our website at lwcplatsmith.org, just our church website, and you can find that reading plan and follow along, and we'll continue to do podcasts that accompany that reading plan as well. But diving into the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy uh, comes from uh, Greek terms that mean the second giving of the law, Um, because that's exactly what happens in this book. We've already had the Ten Commandments given, but yet here we see that they're given right away again. And the reason for that being that the first generation that was supposed to take God's promises and to live up to those standards and those stipulations and to enter the promised land— they failed their commitment. They failed to uphold their end of the deal, and therefore they were not able to enter into the promised land. They were put to death in various ways, and some of them wandered in the wilderness until they died. Um, And then once that first generation had died off, then God began to uh, rebuild with new people, new leadership, and as the people wandered in the wilderness, there came a point where it was time to begin marching back towards the promised land. And so they start to go through uh, the territory of Edom and Moab and um, the Amorite uh, country, and right before they're about to go into the promised land, God gives them the Ten Commandments again. And the reason is because this is a part of that agreement, and I've referred to it as that rental agreement. They're going to go into God's property. They're going to live on God's land, and if they're going to stay there and be happy there and be prosperous there, then they have to uphold their end of the bargain. And so God makes a deal with them. They can't go forward and proceed based on a covenant that was made with their parents. They have to sign on the dotted line themselves And that way they'll be accountable for what they do. And so God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, are you going to uphold your end of the uh, agreement? And they say, yes, we will. And so they are now going into the promised land with their own personal covenant, Uh, not just their parents' covenant, but their covenant. And um, so a lot of the uh, laws and the Levitical codes that you've already read about, they're being repeated here because this is a second giving of the law. It's a new group of people, and it's worth repeating because obviously hearing it one time or however many times we've heard it already wasn't enough because the people didn't live up to it. They forgot it or they ignored it, and so here it is again repeated. Now, we're going to get a lot of new material in Deuteronomy as well. One of the things that I think is worth pointing to is um, the Shema, and it's a very famous part of Deuteronomy. It's quoted um, by other authors in the Bible, and um, every Jewish person in the New Testament period would have known what this word meant and what uh, where it came from. In fact, Deuteronomy is a very common book in the New Testament. Uh, outside of the Psalms, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than he quotes uh, any other Old Testament book, according to 
um, some of the records I've read. I've not gone and counted these things personally, but uh, based on others' research, Deuteronomy is the second most common book coming from Jesus' mouth when he's quoting the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy, one of the one of the main places that it's referenced or alluded to is the Shema, where it says, listen or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this passage is where we get the record of the greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, uh, and strength. And it's also the passage that explains ways that this generation can pass down the knowledge and instruction of God to future generations. Because when they're entering into the promised land, it's not good enough that they know the law and that they uphold the uh, covenant stipulations. But this is going to be multi-generational, and it's ever so important that the next generation understands the weightiness of living according to God's given commands. Um, otherwise, they build a society and they build a kingdom inside of God's parameters just to see it fall apart 50 years later. And that's no good. Um, we, we're looking for something permanent. We're looking for something that's going to usher in worldwide peace and blessings to all nations, as was promised to Abraham. That's what we're going for here. And so God gives them instruction to pass this on to their children and their children's children's children. And he tells them to teach them the instruction of God when they sit down. Teach them the instruction of God when they uh, stand up and when they're walking along the way. Teach them at the bedside. Teach them um, by writing it down in various places around the house and putting little um, pieces of paper that have the law on their garments so that they can read it. They're they're various ways here, and some of them I think are literal, and some of these are symbolic, but overall we get the idea that God wants the Jewish people, and he wants Christians today, to be passing his instruction and the knowledge of God on to the next generation, and for that to be something that's an ongoing conversation. That can't happen just in the synagogue. That can't happen just in the Sunday school class. That has to come from the parent all the time. It needs to be a lifestyle of sharing God's goodness. But moving forward from that, we get to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and there's an interesting concept that's developed here. Uh, up to this point, we've heard about circumcision, and circumcision being the removal of the foreskin to mark the people of God. It was one of the defining characteristic traits of being a Jewish person. And so they would remove the foreskin, to symbolize the covenant of Abraham. And that was where this was instituted back in Genesis 15. But now Moses writes that they are to circumcise their hearts. And so he takes a physical mark, an identity trait of the Jewish people, and applies it spiritually to their character and their, um, their faith. And it's something that should mark them internally. It may be invisible to the eye, but it's certainly visible to God. And this becomes synonymous with being a believer and being um, and trusting in God, not being rebellious and callous and hard-hearted. Uh, circumcising one's heart is similar to one submitting to the lordship of Christ in the New Testament. And so they're being called out to do this, to circumcise their heart. And it says... And be no longer stubborn, because that's exactly what the Israelites have been up to this point. That's what caused the first generation 
to fail and prohibited them from going into the promised land. Their stubbornness. And a lot of this language is tied back to the golden calf narrative because stubbornness and um, stiff-necked uh, descriptions are cattle language. And because they chose to worship a cow rather than to worship God, whom they were made in the image of, they've chosen a lesser degree of being. They've chosen to be more like cows than to be like God. Because they had the choice. They could be like God because they were made in the image of God and they were going to be his kingdom of priests. But they chose to be more like cows. They would rather serve cows. And so God starts talking to them like they're cows. And he calls them stiff-necked and he calls them stubborn. And um, a lot of the language used for the Israelites moving forward from that time period is rooted in cattle terminology. And so he's telling them, stop being cows but to be, stop being cows, you have to completely circumcise your heart. You have to be transformed and changed. And so he's calling on these people to be transformed and changed back into image bearers of God, back into those who carry God's goodness and reflect God's character, not the character of some other golden calf or other uh, man-made God. And so we get through some portions where God instructs the people about uh, warfare and how to cleanse the promised land. And a lot of questions come up there that we won't have time to answer today. But one of the things I'd like to just draw our attention to is that this is God's land. And we forget that sometimes. But this is God's land and God has standards for living in his land. And he's already told the Israelites, if they come into the land and they don't uphold his standards there is going to be a harsh eviction that follows. Well, if that's true for the Israelites, who are God's chosen people, and God's going to use them, how much more is that true for these strangers who have completely rejected God altogether and have uh, held on to foreign deities and, and a plethora of deities? They worship gods made with their own hands. They make sacrifices that uh, require human sacrifice, and uh, they kill their babies and burn them in the fire. They do, they do all kinds of unspeakable things in their worship of foreign deities. So if God's going to give a harsh eviction to his own people if they disobey, how much more so to uh, these others who are living on God's land? It's not their land. It's God's land. And I do believe there is a correlation between Eden and the promised land. We've spoken about that a little bit, but I not that necessarily... Eden was geographically located exactly where Israel is, um, but I think there is a theological tie to that land. I believe when the flood happened, it would have changed the uh, topography uh, significantly, and some of the geographical landmarks would have been moved and shifted, perhaps. Um, but I think there is a theological tie to this land as being God's place, and we see terminology like the mountain of God referred to in the book of Ezekiel back in Eden, there was a mountain of God. And then, of course, when they get into the promised land, Jerusalem becomes the mountain of God. And so I think there's this correlation between the two. But I, I say all that just to remind us that that was God's special land where he was going to uh, have sacred space for his people to come and to commune with him. And so as God's giving this over to Israel and he's bringing them into this land, all these other people that have claimed this as their own and who are worshiping other gods in this territory, they're really doing so in a violation of, well, they're trespassing. 
they're trespassing on God's property and they have no right to be there. They're not living up to the commandments. They're not upholding uh, any kind of agreement and any standard and stipulations that have been laid forth by God. They're not letting the land rest. They're not um, honoring God in the land and through the commandments. So they've got to go. And they're not going to go peacefully. And so many of these people, they just have to be removed and uh, annihilated. And some of them have hardened their hearts so much against the uh, will of Yahweh that um, there's no other choice but for them to be annihilated and wiped out. So that's one of the things we see. Uh, but we, we do have to remember whose land this is. Um, another point of interest, I think, going through Deuteronomy in chapter 21, verse 22, it talks about cursed is the man who's hanged on a tree. Um, because we're one day away from the celebration of Good Friday. And in Good Friday, we remember the crucifixion. We remember Jesus hanging on a tree. And that quote actually gets used in the New Testament to refer to Christ. And he takes on a curse, even though he didn't do anything. He's not a criminal. In the context of Deuteronomy, it's talking about criminals. And it's talking about how we don't leave them hanged up overnight um, it's a, you, you kill them and then you take them down, but it's a curse that they bear by being put on the tree, by being hanged. It's a demonstration of justice against unrighteousness, and that's what Jesus did for us, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin, and the curse that he bore is the curse that we deserved. And uh, so just remember that even in the early sections of the the Old Testament, back in the Torah, there's already glimpses and snapshots of the cross and the crucifixion that will happen thousands of years later. Uh, chapter 27 lays out a series of curses, and chapter 28 lays out a series of blessings. And that's important that we see that the Israelites have the option of being cursed or being blessed based on what they do. I think Jesus takes up this pattern later on, and he begins to say, blessed are those in the Beatitudes. And so it's similar in that he's giving a Moses-like teaching to his disciples uh, during his Sermon on the Mount. Um, but these blessings and curses are laid out in advance for the Israelites, and when they go into the Promised Land, they have a choice. Are they going to act the way that's going to bring forth curse, or are they going to act in a way that brings forth blessing? The choice is theirs. And chapter 30, I think, is very significant and tied to these curses and blessings because Moses lays out life versus death. You can choose life or you can choose death. And we've got a similar choice to make today. And so does everybody on the planet. We can choose life and blessing or we can choose death and curse. And curse comes through sin and a life without atonement and a life without forgiveness of sin. If we live in our sin and we choose to uh, stay in that sin and live without any kind of reconciliation for that sin against God, then we are choosing a curse upon our eternal future, and we are choosing death. Um, the same death that was chosen by those who ate the forbidden fruit in the garden. The day they eat of it, they will surely die, and to be, to be dead spiritually uh, leads to death eternally. And so we have a choice to make. Are we going to cling to life that is found in Jesus Christ? Are we going to cling to life that is found in God's goodness and his promises of blessing that come through forgiveness and through atonement? Or are we going to stay in our sin? And I think that's what the book of Deuteronomy is calling us to remember. 
And so as you conclude the Torah this week, I pray that it's been a a call for you to pursue blessing over curse and life over death. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.